0: The US presidential election, the election of Joe Biden as the new president, the announcements from the Chinese leader about being carbon neutral by 260, these have created quite a lot of excitement amongst environmentalists and those concerned about a climate change. There's a sense that this could be a new beginning and that for all the failures in the past, uh, the chances of a new global climate agreement building on the Paris Agreement and the prospects for COP26 in Glasgow in November 2021, uh, these all look really a lot brighter than they did just a few weeks ago, or indeed when uh, Trump's threat to withdraw the US from the Paris Agreement took effect just at the pivotal point of the US election. So the question that I want to ask is whether in fact COP26 is going to be the breakthrough that everybody of course hopes for and whether these sorts of top-down global climate agreements are really going to cut through the emissions and really get us back onto a serious, sustainable economic path. So to do that, I want to start by looking backwards, how we got here and what lessons we can learn from what's happened to us so far. I then want to take us to The game in Glasgow, what's at stake, where the main parties are. And then I'll ask the serious questions about whether, in fact, COP26 will really make a difference, uh, what the risks are associated with it, and what really needs to be done to address climate change. So let me take you back to Kyoto, when Bill Clinton's idea was taken forward, but the US and Clinton jumped off the framework. And to Copenhagen, where Obama cut out of the overarching ambitions for the Copenhagen agreement and fixed a deal with the Chinese leader on the sidelines, through to Paris and Trump's uh, decision to opt out. What drives all of these events along the path is both very broad and very narrow politics. The original UN framework on climate change came out of discussions right back in the 1980s, uh, the Brundtland Report, in which the focus was on the North-South divide, how the north and the industrialized countries, the rich countries of the world would help out those countries in the south. And indeed, that still is a fundamental story going on right through to COP26 in Glasgow. So the ambition was that the world leaders would get together, sign a global treaty, which would be enforceable law, and that treaty would commit each and every one of the major polluters to targets to reduce their emissions, consistent with the overall goal of limiting climate change to two degrees. Now, of course, that's what the UN would want to do. That's what the UN's all about, and they tried, but so far it's not worked. And it's not worked in two really important ways. The first and fundamental one is that every single year since 1990, emissions have contributed to an increase in the carbon concentration in the atmosphere of about two parts per million per annum. Without a single break, you know, not even the financial crisis and not even the coronavirus pandemic has actually made much difference to the march onwards and upwards of that concentration in the atmosphere. And that's all that matters. That is the measure. It's not just about which emissions come from where, it's the balance of emissions and sequestration, which produces that concentration in the atmosphere, which causes the greenhouse effect and produces climate change. And if that's the test, if that's what people thought they were doing from 1990, 92 onwards, and that's what they thought these agreements were supposed to achieve, it has been a failure we've wasted 30 years continuing to increase that concentration and then at the political level you know the deals that these agreements are supposed to represent are fundamentally an agreement between the three big global polluters the eu which has always been willing to pursue territorial emissions part because it's been deindustrializing the us which is the great industrial nation of the 20th century, and China, the emerging economic powerhouse. The EU was always willing to go unilaterally and uh, down this path, and the reason's pretty straightforward. It wasn't gonna cost very much in Europe, precisely because Europe, and indeed the US, were gonna import a large amount of carbon-intensive goods from China rather than produce them domestically. And indeed, that's what's going on since the uh, collapse of the Berlin Wall. And that's what's made it relatively less costly and relatively easier for Europe to go down this path. US, well, they were never going to agree to a deal on climate change if China didn't agree to. And um, that's why a Republican majority in the Senate has blocked Clinton and Obama and why Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama and Trump all ended up pursuing roughly the same policy, albeit with a very different rhetoric behind it. So that's the fallout from these agreements. The past has not been good. It's not a hopeful basis to look forward. But why might it work this time around? Well, the great hopes are that China and the US are gonna come to the table and agree. And of course, the EU will come in the slipstream. So what exactly are they going to agree to? The US is switching out of coal into gas, and it will no doubt build lots of renewables going forward. China comes to the table with this commitment that it's going to be, quote, carbon neutral or aimed to be by 260. And what does that mean? Well, I think it means that for the next 10 or 15 years, China is going to park the climate change issue and continue with its robust and continuous growth of the coal industry domestically and in the uh, states to which it's been lending financial support. So what we can expect from China is another 10 years of more and more coal burn, It's currently building more coal power stations than the entire coal capacity within the EU. More financing of coal plant overseas, more pollution, and as the biggest polluter in the world now in carbon terms, this really matters. You know, there is no real way in which the objective of 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees can be met with the envelope of emissions that China will produce on its current frame from now to 2060. We just can't afford 40 years more of China's pollution. And then on top of that, we can't afford a carbon-intensive industrialization of India, and of Africa. Uh, And it's China, India and Africa where the future very much on climate change lies. And if you stand back from the rhetoric and the the political statements and so on, it doesn't look good. You know, if we go on like this, we're going to fry. And anyone who thinks that a global agreement at Paris and COP26 is gonna fix the problem, I think they're on a different planet to me. That doesn't mean it isn't important. It doesn't mean a great deal can't be achieved at COP26. It doesn't mean a more cooperative US won't be helpful. Of course it all will. But ultimately, the challenge for Joe Biden is what his attitude to China is going to be on a very large number of different dimensions, all of which fit into the great geopolitical game of strategic dominance and trade and the South China Sea and the uh, position of Taiwan and the development of uh, Chinese military power. All of that's on the table alongside the trade issues. Oh, and climate change too. And uh, I think it's a little ambitious at this stage to get overexcited about the idea that all this lot's going to come to an amicable conclusion uh, anytime soon. There are huge bumps in the road. And of course... Obama and Clinton's problem was a Republican Senate that wouldn't ratify an international treaty. Well, that looks like being Biden's problem too. And it may or may not come good in the further elections in January. But in the midterm elections in 2022, and that's not that far away, uh, things could get tough again. So I'm not fantastically optimistic about COP26 if the ambition is supposed to be about providing a framework in which two degrees or 1.5 will be achieved. A lot will happen. There'll be a lot of discussion about nature-based solutions. Hopefully, there'll be more focus on agriculture and transport. There'll be a lot more media attention to climate change. All of that's for the good. But what really matters to make climate change work is the bottom-up stuff. It's about technology. It's about uh, what people do unilaterally. It's about net zero targets for particular countries, provided, of course, they're on carbon consumption and not just on carbon production and just territorial emissions. You know, if countries around the world really want to stop causing climate change, then they have to look to the imports and they have to look at the really big issue about carbon trade. That's actually where COP26 could make a difference because the global game, the global geopolitics about climate change is colliding with the global game about trade, US-China trade, of course, but more generally. And when we bring these things together, actually, at COP26, there's a glimmer of hope that we could usher in a new global trading regime, or at least make a start on it, which puts the environment at the heart of what's going on globally, and not just uh, free trade, laissez-faire, which has been the dominant feature in the WTO and what's gone before. So yes, George, jaw great idea at COP26. Yes, lots of ideas can come to the table, but the fundamentals remain. China, the US, that pivotal relationship and how that may or may not unfold, not just at Glasgow, but over the coming decade. Will it be war or will it be peace, harmony and a better, greener world? That's the question and let's see what happens. Thank you.